hear the word from Exodus. Keep in mind, we're just saying about the situation we're reading about. Uh, we just come across out of Egypt. Fearing for our lives, there's been a great calamity, and the sea is closed on the pursuing military force. And Moses begins to sing. Then Moses and the Israelites sang this song to the Lord. I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. Both horse and driver he has hurled into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my defense. He has become my salvation. He is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his army he has hurled into the sea. The best of Pharaoh's officers are drowned in the Red Sea. The deep waters have covered them. They sank to the depths like a stone. Your right hand, Lord, with majestic power, your right hand, Lord, shattered the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you threw down those who opposed you. You unleashed your burning anger. It consumed them like stubble. By the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The surging waters stood up like a wall. The deep waters congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy boasted, I will pursue, I will overtake them. I will divide their spoils. I will gorge myself on them. I will draw my sword and my hand will destroy them. But you blew them with your breath and the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who among the gods is like you, Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders? You stretch out your right hand and the earth swallows your enemies. In your unfailing love, you will lead the people you have redeemed. In your strength, you will guide them in your holy dwelling. The nations will hear and tremble. Anguish will grip the people of Philistia. The chiefs of Edom will be terrified. Leaders of Moab will be seized with trembling. People of Canaan will melt away. Terror and dread will fall upon them. By the power of your arm, they will be as still as a stone. Until your people pass by, Lord. Until the people you brought pass by. You will bring them in and plant them on the mountain of your inheritance. The place, Lord, you made for your dwelling. The sanctuary, Lord, your hands established. The Lord reigns forever and ever. With Pharaoh's horses... Chariots and horsemen went into the sea. The Lord brought the waters of the sea back over them. But the Israelites walked through the sea on dry ground. Then Miriam the prophet, Aaron's sister, took a timbrel in her hand, and all the women followed her with timbrels and dancing. Miriam said to them, Sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. Both horse and rider he has hurled into the sea. Matthew? Good to see you this morning. Uh, last June, after months and months of planning and driving, we were driving on, uh, on Highway 12 in Colorado, and our family caught the, the first glimpse of the Sangre de Cristo Mountains, which is, is the Blood of Christ Mountains in Spanish, and it forms the, the southernmost range of the Rocky Mountains in, in southern Colorado and northern New Mexico. And as we headed into those mountains, we, our car <coughs> was packed to the gills. We had groceries in our lap because we had no more room, and we were ready to begin our sabbatical in Colorado. And Christian and I knew that there was only one song that could capture this moment. 
And that was, of course, John Denver's Rocky Mountain High. And this song we played again and again throughout the summer, and it became a kind of anthem for it. It became a kind of soundtrack for a sabbatical in Colorado. And my hope was that 30, 40, 50 years from now, when those first few notes of Rocky Mountain High begin to play, this anthem of our summer would be etched so deeply in the grooves of my children's minds that they would immediately be transported back to that summer, that they could again in their minds see the mountains, they could, they could smell the pines, they could feel the high-altitude air. Songs are powerful. Songs and music affect our moods. They influence how we think and how we behave. They help us to remember. They transport us back in time. And the most important event in the Old Testament, the freeing of the Israelites from slavery in Egypt, is appropriately followed by a song, a song at the sea, a song that would be sung again and again by the people, an anthem for them, which would proclaim how God had saved them and how he had done it in such a mighty way. We've, we've now covered uh, 14 chapters of Exodus. Uh, the, the, we've, the, the Israelites have spent 400-plus years in slavery, and now that we're on the other side of the sea, is, Egypt is finally behind them. Egypt is finally in the rearview mirror. And now that the, the Israelites have left Egypt, God is going to lead them to Mount Sinai, where he will make this covenant with them. And so we find ourselves in our passage, in our text, in this kind of in-between place. Egypt is behind, Mount Sinai is ahead, and here they are at the shore where they sing this song. And that song is, in many ways reflects the position of the Israelites uh, because the first 12 verses of the song are going to look back at what God has done. And then we'll have a switch at verse 13, and we're going to begin to look ahead, what will God do for them? So let's begin with the first half of the song. It begins like this. I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted, both horse and driver. He has hurled into the sea. The Israelites have been saved. They've been rescued by, from the Egyptians. This and their first response is to sing, but not just any song. It's a song of praise. It's a song of worship. If you remember a couple weeks ago, we, we looked at how the Israelites had found themselves in this impossible situation. They looked one way, and there's Pharaoh's army coming after them. The other was the sea. Barring a miraculous deliverance, the Israelites were done. But they were saved. The waters, of course, parted. They walked on the dry land, and when the Egyptians followed, they were destroyed. And so now on the shore of, of the Red Sea, after this miraculous event has taken place, they, Miriam grabs the timbrel, they start to dance, and they break out in song, and they, they sing with joy. But it's not, it's not just a song kind of a generic joy. It, it's joy rooted in a very concrete actions of God. This is a personal song. Listen to the words of this song again. The Lord is my strength and my defense. He has become my salvation. He is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. Why do we sing? Have you thought about that? Why do we, a good portion of our Sunday morning service, why does it consist of singing? And what's interesting, if you, if you look back at history, for almost all of history, the only way you could hear music was to hear it live. Okay, so you either had to produce that music yourself or you had to find someone who would produce that music for you. You, you could hear, uh, you, you could gather in a living room around a piano and you would hear music. You, could, you wanted to hear an orchestra, you had to go to a concert hall. 
Which, think about it, that's kind of crazy. I think we take for granted that at any second we can access music, but until the late 1800s, recorded music didn't exist. And think about it now. Think about what you have in your pocket right now on your phone. You have access to an infinite amount of music. And you don't just have access to music. You have an access to the finest musicians and singers in the world. So in light of that, why would someone like me ever sing? Like, why not just play our music each Sunday over these speakers? Because singing is one of the primary ways we worship God. Singing is one of the primary ways we connect with God. The Israelites are singing because singing is what God's people do in response to what God has done for them. Let me say that again. Singing is what God's people do in response to what God has done for them. God saves, people sing. You'll see that multiple times in the Bible. God saves, people break out in song. And I think if, if I'm totally honest with you, I find, I find worship a little bit of an elusive thing. Maybe some of you would agree with me. Like, I, I, If I'm honest, sometimes I struggle to worship, and sometimes I don't even know how to worship. I think about this often when I... When I, uh, many of you parents probably put your kids to bed, you often pray with them. And, and as I pray with my, my children, um, I know in my mind that part of that prayer should consist of adoration. That part of that, that prayer should consist of, of praise. But that's not my default. Okay? My default is to do one of two things when I pray with my kids. Ask God for something or thank God for something. Okay? I want to ask God for something. I want to pray for someone in our congregation who's sick, I want to pray for a good night's sleep for my child. I want to pray for we're traveling or someone else is traveling. Or I thank God. I want to thank God for his love for us. I want to thank God for this day. These aren't bad things. These are good things. We should tell God what we need. We should thank God. I think those things come more naturally, though. But praising, I think that's harder. And I think this is where music, this is where songs can really help us. Because songs give us language on how to praise God. Songs teach us how to speak about who God is and what God has done for us. Many of you are, are reading through uh, the Old Testament right now. Uh, we just finished Exodus, but you're also hopefully reading the Psalms, which, of course, is Israel's songbook. And as you're reading through those Psalms, those songs, I want you to just notice when the psalmist is praising God. Okay, there's almost no better place you can go in the Bible to get language for how to praise God than the Psalms. The Psalms are songs, and they teach us how to praise God. You know, when I think about it today, there's, like, there's not many places except for church where people sing together. I can guarantee you, if I didn't worship here regularly, I would not sing. Like, maybe once in a while in my car by myself, that would be the full extent of my singing. But every week, week after week, I gather with God's people, and I sing, and guess what? It's a countercultural thing to do. Not only because almost nobody out there is singing in a corporate setting like we are, but here's why I think it's, it's countercultural. Because praise songs turn us away from ourselves. Okay, the beginning of this song at the sea, it begins with I and my, but it very quickly turns to God. This song is through and through theocentric. It is centered on God. This is the movement of worship. Worship should move us away from ourselves and it should move us towards God. It should decenter us. If we arrive in these pews naturally consumed with ourselves, hopefully by the time we leave, we are a little more decentered. That's we're not quite at the center. That's countercultural. Because 
almost everything else in our society is trying to do the exact opposite. Almost everything else is trying to get you to focus on yourself more. Augustine, uh, who was one of the church's uh, most influential theologians, taught that we are by nature turned inward. Humans are by nature, we have this recurved inward. That's our, that's our natural bent. We have this tendency to be self-obsessed and to be to, to navel-gazing. Worship, though, is so important because worship has the power to actually turn us out. It has, a, it has the power to, to turn that curve outside so we're not just consumed with ourselves. So here's the first thing I want you to see in the song at the sea. We need to sing, okay? I know that's maybe kind of obvious, but I just want to remind ourselves, especially those of us who maybe don't have are bent towards music. We need to sing. All of us need to sing. Not just the praise team. Like, did you notice there wasn't like just like a praise team uh, that led the worship at the sea? Everybody was joining in. Not just those who can read music. We all need to sing because we have our own song to sing. It's a song of redemption. We're on the other side of redemption uh, from certain death. We were rescued by Jesus Christ, okay? God saves, people sing. Let's keep going. Verse 3. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. As I mentioned, the first, this first part of the song, we're going to be looking back. What, is, what has Yahweh done? What has God done? And as we then get to verse 13, we'll turn to the future. But right now we're looking at how God has freed the Israelites from slavery in Egypt. And, and how, does the song, how does the song tell us that God has done it? God has done it with, uh, with mighty power. Okay, God has hurled Pharaoh's chariots and army into the sea. God has unleashed his anger on the enemy and shattered them. The Lord is a warrior. How does that, how does that settle with you? Does that make you a little uncomfortable to hear Yahweh described as a warrior? If I walked into your house today and I was greeted by Micah 6.8, do justice, love mercy, walk humbly with your God, I would not be too surprised. You'll find that if you walk into my house. If I walked into your house and I saw the first thing, the Lord is a warrior, I'd be like, hey, tell me more about that. I don't think I've ever walked into a Mennonite's house and seen that scripture on your wall. Tell me more about that. Interestingly, though, Millard Lynn, Mennonite scholar, pastor, theologian, teacher, taught at AMBS for many years, he, he wrote a book called Yahweh is a Warrior. And in that book, Lynn uses this text, Exodus 15.3, to make a case for biblical pacifism. So maybe not the first place you think, I'm going to go make a case for, for pacifism in the Bible, but this is where Lynn goes. And he, he goes there because he thinks that the single most important affirmation of the song is that Israel, though it is characterized as a victorious army marching out of Egypt, has no part in the battle. Okay? Who defeats Pharaoh? It's not Moses. It's not the Israelites. If you notice in this great, uh, this great hymn of victory, Moses isn't even mentioned once. Who defeats Pharaoh? Yahweh. And Yahweh alone defeats Pharaoh. Go back to verse 2 and listen to it. The Lord is my strength and my defense. He has become my salvation. The Israelites are not saved because of their own strength. They are saved because of Yahweh's strength. I'm reminded uh, of what Paul writes in Romans 12, 17 when he writes this. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Do not take revenge. So why, why would we not repay evil for evil? That's, that's the most natural response to have. Why would you not do it? Well, Paul continues. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. 
For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay. Leave room for God's wrath. How is it that I cannot strike back in the face of injustice? Because God is deeply concerned about injustice. Okay, I think actually Micah 6, 8, which expresses God's concern about injustice, and Exodus 15, I think they actually have more in common than we think. Because they don't contradict each other, they actually complement each other. See, understandably, when, when, you and I, when you and I get to texts like this in Exodus, when we read about a Yahweh hurling the horse and driver into the sea, we, we hear about Yahweh's nostrils parting the waters and, and, and unleashing burning anger. I probably make some of us uncomfortable. But remember what God is directing God's anger toward. As Christopher Wright points out, God's anger is directed at chariots and drivers, which were the tangible iron fists of a regime that oppressed these people, singing with slavery, forced labor, and state-sponsored genocidal campaign. Yahweh's anger, Yahweh's wrath might make some of us a little uncomfortable, but Yahweh, seeing everything that has transpired in Egypt, all the injustice, and not getting angry, I think that should make us more uncomfortable. Sometimes people will say something like, I I can't believe in a God who could have wrath. That's just not my God. And I think the answer is absolutely you can believe in a God that has wrath. You would not want to believe in a God who does not have wrath because that God would be indifferent to injustice and evil. Let me give you a, a current example. There's many examples, of course, around the world of injustice that we could turn to, but, but I'm going to go to the one that's particularly on our radars right now. When you read about the death and destruction and atrocities that are happening in Ukraine, it makes us angry, rightfully so. It makes us angry because we know what we're witnessing is wrong. We look at what's happening and we know that's not the way the world is supposed to be. We know that it's not God's will. We are witnessing evil, plain and simple. And we are angry because we should be angry because that is the correct response to evil. If what was happening in Ukraine did not make us angry, that would be a problem. Because it would mean we were, we were indifferent to what was happening. We didn't care. Same with God. If what happened to the Israelites in Egypt does not make God angry, or if what is happening today in Ukraine does not make God angry, that would concern me. Here's, uh, did, we, did I get you the slide, Ron? All right. Thank you for doing that last minute. That was a bad example. Slide number one. This is John Stott's uh, uh, definition of God's wrath. His his steady, unrelenting, unremitting, uncompromising antagonism to evil in all its forms and manifestations. What a great definition of wrath. God is opposed to evil in all its forms. You need to know this about God. God is completely uncompromising when it comes to evil. You do not want to serve a God who is not uncompromising when it comes to evil. We get angry at injustice and God gets angry at injustice. Here's the difference, though. Here's the difference between God's anger and our anger. Our anger is usually unjust. It's usually disproportionate to the offense. Okay? Our anger is quick to flare up. Our anger is in a rush. Our anger is not interested in hearing the whole story. Our anger doesn't have time for the whole story. Our anger is not interested in second chances. Our anger, as John John Mark Comer says, it almost always comes from a place of a wounded ego. Think about that. Think about when most of the time you get really, really angry. 
I hope it's about the injustice in the world. But if I think about myself, what really makes me mad is when I've felt stupid, when I felt taken advantage of, when somebody made me feel a way I didn't want to feel. That's when I get angry, and that's selfish. Right? Just think about the last time that you really got angry. More likely than not, it has more to do with your own bruised ego than it does with anything else. That's not God's anger. If our anger is primarily selfish, God's anger comes from a parent-like love for his children. God's anger is, is that feeling you feel when, when harm is done to your, your child. God's anger is that feeling of your child is about to run out into the middle of the street and you are angry. Why are you angry? Because you're protective of that child. Our wrath is selfish. God's wrath is other-centered. We're quick to anger. God is slow to anger. Okay, think about where we are in our story. Back in chapter 2, God looks down. He sees the way the Israelites are suffering. They've cried out to God. God hears their groaning. He looks down, and he's concerned about them. Guess that? That was over 40 years ago. God looks down and sees them, and decades pass, and decades pass, and decades pass. Yes, God's anger is burning right now. Yes, God is hurling horse and driver into the sea. After decades and decades of waiting, after countless chances and opportunities for Pharaoh to do the right thing and to release the oppressed people, I'll be honest with you, if anything, God seems a little too, a little too slow to anger to me. Like, if that's me, if I, I, want, I, want, I want justice right now, and yet God is patient. As we'll read later, God is slow to anger. Do you see why it's good that God's anger is different than our anger? Why can we leave, why can we leave revenge to God, like Paul says? Like, why don't we take up the sword as followers of Jesus to met out punishment and vengeance? Because we're not good judges or enforcers. Because we're too quick to anger. Because we're selfish. Because our punishments don't fit the crime. But we also leave revenge to God because we know God, we trust God opposes evil in all its forms. We, we can trust when we see the evil in the world, God has not fallen asleep at the wheel. Okay? God is very aware of what's happening in the evils in the world. God's timetable, this can be frustrating, is a little different than ours, right? I felt frustration about this. But, but we need to know God is aware of this, and he is absolutely opposed to it. Not only can we trust that God is aware of it, but we can trust that God is powerful enough to defeat evil in all its forms. Yahweh is a warrior. He's a powerful and incomparable warrior. Don't, don't make the mistake that Peter makes in the Garden of Gethsemane when Peter all of a sudden thinks Jesus needs backup. Okay? That's what Peter does, right? Peter's concerned that Jesus is going to need some help. He draws his sword. What, is, what does Jesus say to him? Peter, you think, you, need, you think I need you to come to my defense? You don't think I've got legions of angels that at any second I could call? As we look back, we're on our own shore or inside of the, the Red Sea, as we look back at the cross and resurrection and we see how Jesus has shattered the greatest enemy, Satan, we can have confidence that God is opposed to evil in all its forms. We can also have confidence that God is powerful enough to vanquish it just like he did to Pharaoh's army. Okay, so we've, we've looked back. Now, if his last part, we're going to look ahead. That's where things turn in verse 13 as we begin to look ahead. Can you put up that next slide, Ron? All right, so here's uh, verse 13. In your unfailing love, you will, so notice the, the change in the tense here, you will lead the people you have redeemed 
In your strength, you will guide them to your holy dwelling. The Israelites find themselves, as I said, between uh, they find past redemption and future hope. They've seen what God has done. God has miraculously delivered them from death and slavery. And now they're given confidence that God will lead them to his holy dwelling. There's a lot of obstacles we, we read about that stand between the Israelites on the shore and when they make it to the promised land. There's these, these nations between them. There's the, the people of Philistia, the chiefs of Edom, the leaders of Moab, the people of Canaan. Okay, there's serious obstacles between the Israelites and the promised land. But they're confident. They're confident because after this stunning and complete defeat of the Egyptians, they are in, they're in utter awe of God. They're confident that whatever, whatever obstacle lies ahead, God has just defeated the greatest imperial power of, of that time. God is going to handle whatever's ahead because there's no God like Yahweh. Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working in wonders? We find ourselves in, in between these two poles, right? We've, we've been redeemed, we've been saved, and we look ahead towards uh, the promised land, towards the new heaven and new earth. But the journey between those two places is not easy. We've got obstacles. I was listening to a conversation this week between uh, two Christian thinkers, David French and Russell Moore, and this was recorded last October. But they're just talking about the challenges that we've uh, been facing. And, and Russell Moore asked French the question, you know, is this a unique moment, or is this just kind of the way things always have been and, and we're just now seeing it? And he kind of said kind of both. But what was interesting is French started to, kind of walk through what we've experienced in 2020 and 2021. Okay, he started to kind of compare it to things in the past. And he said, in 2020, in one year we went through 1974, an impeachment. We went through 1929, a stock market crash. We went through 1918, a pandemic. Then he said, you, you go to 2021, and we go through 1975, the fall of Saigon, with what happened with the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan. We go to another 1974 with another impeachment. On January 6th, we come closer to 1861, the start of the Civil War, since 1861. And since that interview, last October, we now have the largest conventional conflict and refugee crisis in Europe since 1945. That's a lot. When he said that, I was like, oh, man. No wonder a little bit, some of us feel a little rattled right now. No wonder some of us, our lives feel a little bit unstable right now. Maybe you feel like there's been no moment that you can remember in your life that you felt more unstable, that the world has felt more unstable. And I think there's some good reason for that. And what happens is when that amount of immense pressure comes in on us, we're tested. So we don't really, I mean, this is just a general rule. You don't really know how you're going to act until you're actually tested. You don't really know what you probably believe until it's tested. We thought, many of us thought our faith and loyalty was to God and God's kingdom. It turns out for a lot of Christians in America, our faith was in our politics. We thought our hope and unity was in Jesus Christ. It turns out our hope was in a politician, a presidential candidate who was going to save us, protect us, save our country. We are in some uncertain times right now, and these uncertain times are testing us. The events and challenges of the last year are understandably testing us. They're sussing out where does our real hope and our real security lie. And this is an opportunity for us at Midway to be light and salt to the world. I, I want people to look at Midway and say, man, I wonder what's different about Midway. 
you know, they, they seem to be very, their eyes seem to be very open to the challenges of the world. They're not burying their head in the sand. They know there's evil in the world. But you know what? They don't seem to be driven to despair. They seem to be hope-filled people. You know, when I look at people at Midway, I just don't see the kind of anxiety and fear that I see so much in our country right now. They, they don't seem to be sorting themselves out into tribal factions because Christ is what unites them. How do we do this? How do we, how do we look around at the world around us and see all these things that are happening, see all these obstacles, and think, how are we going to get to the other side? We do it by beginning to recognize that we are in awe of God. We serve a mighty God. We serve a God who is so much bigger than all those things I mentioned. And those are big things, no doubt. But we serve an even bigger God. I think this is what's so good about going back to the Old Testament. Not that you don't get a New Testament. We're going to get a big picture of God. We need that picture of God. And what we need to do in response when we encounter that God is to offer up our praise to that mighty God. We have seen how our God has acted in history, at the Exodus and most supremely at the cross. We, like Israelites, are confident that we worship a powerful God. That no matter what happens, no matter what obstacle comes up, we're not going to be anxious because God is going to get us to the other side. And when the darkness surrounds us, when those obstacles seem too great, when I am prone to despair, I'm going to sing out like this. The Lord is my strength and my defense. He has become my salvation. He is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. Because the Lord has been faithful to us in the past, we can be confident that he will be faithful to us going forward. This is your anthem. This is your song. As soon as our, this song and our passage was sung, the song at the sea, Miriam the prophet comes up and she sings it again. Because we need to sing this song again and again and again. Sing to the Lord for he is highly exalted, both horse and driver he has hurled into the sea. It's not a song to be sung once, but again and again. God saves. Let's sing together.